I am very thankful for all of us to be here together. I know that God has been showing us wondrous things from his word, and I know that he has more to show us. And so without any further delay, let's get into the word. Let's go ahead and let's have a word of prayer, and then we will go ahead and dive in the word. Let's kneel if you can. If you can't kneel, just bow your heads where you are, and let us go ahead and receive what the Lord wants to give. Our loving Father, we are grateful that once again we can come back together as your people that we can study to show ourselves approved unto you, that we can be workmen that need not be ashamed, for we have rightly divided your words of truth. Lord, we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit once again to speak to our hearts and grant us wisdom and give us minds that are open for direction, redirection, and uh, reconstruction, even of how you would have things to be done here if it be thy will. Lord, we just simply avail ourselves to you, and truly as Jesus prayed, not our will, but your will be done. Bless us now to this end, we ask, for we do ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things that I firmly believe, affirm, and I'm thankful that Wildwood has done very well as it uh, remained an instrument in God's hands for righteousness. And uh, there, are, there are, you know, trainings that you have done. There are seminars you have used especially the ministry through light to help spread the message throughout the world, starting mission schools, training schools the world over. I am privileged to have promoted and encouraged and told others to go to these schools and to take a look and to be educated and trained in gospel, medical, missionary evangelism. And for the things, you'll remember that when we, when we review a legacy, we want to pay attention to the things that God has given us success in, but then we also want to look at the areas where we are worthy of improvement. Pertaining to the things that Wildwood has done well, pertaining to the things where you proved yourself faithful, pertaining to the things that you can truly say after following all of what the Lord has commanded, that you can say we are unprofitable servants, we have only done that which God has told us to do. Pertaining to these things, I want to give you three admonishments from the Word of God. The first one is from the book of John. Let's go to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're going to chapter 8. Three things that I want to share with you from the Word of God for those areas that we have been faithful in doing the Lord's work as one of his institutes after his order in honoring him and benefiting and blessing our fellow man. It's in John, the eighth chapter. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In John chapter 8, it was right there in verse 31 that Jesus said this. In John 8 and verse 31, the Bible says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. My first admonishment is whatever you have learned from the word of God as a movement, as a ministry, over these several years in contemplation of what you can leave behind as a legacy is to encourage others to continue in the word of God to never, ever stop, never get satisfied, never feel that you've studied enough. Whatever it is that brought you to this precious place that you are in your walk with God, continue in the word and go higher and still higher in every round of Jacob's ladder. Continue in the word. Guard your hearts against the exaltation of men's opinions. Guard your heart against the exaltation of tradition. Guard your heart on simply saying, we've been doing it this long and everything's been fine, so let us just continue in that. Guard your heart, family. 
Guard your heart. I often tell people, never, ever confuse God's mercy with God's will. Do not confuse God's mercy with God's will. When I was first trained in professional sales, I remember that my manager, Chad, he asked all of us as young sales reps, this was my first sales job, and he said, how many of you guys ever heard practice makes perfect? And all of us raised our hands. We were like, oh, yeah, we know that phrase very well. Practice makes perfect. He said, how many of you believe that? We said, oh, yeah, man, we believe that wholeheartedly. And then he said, well, I disagree. And so we were shocked. We were like, why would you disagree? And he said, practice does not make perfect. He said, perfect practice makes perfect. And I thought about that. I was like, is he just doing wordplay? But then the next thing he said was, he says, sometimes you can practice doing the wrong thing for 50 years and become perfect at doing the wrong thing. And he says, so the first thing you want is the perfect model. And then once you have a clear picture of the perfect model, then you practice that perfect model point by point until finally its perfection is perfected in you. I learned that from a sales manager. Boy, does that fit the principles of the gospel. The Bible is very, very clear that we want to make sure that as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we should walk in him. And if you receive him wrong, you're going to walk wrong. But if you receive him right, oh, yeah, you'll walk right. And as you practice, it'll get better and better, and Christ will perfect what he wants to perfect in each and every one of us. Continue in the word, family. Continue in that word. Never, ever put the word down, even when we look at moments and say, well, we've been doing it this long and everything has been fine. That is not enough. Test everything to the word of God. Test everything. That's what that precious little book, Great Controversy under the chapter, a safe, our, our safeguard, our only safeguard. It makes it very, very clear that we are to test everything according to God's word. So my first admonishment to you at Wildwood is continue in the word. But then there's one more thing to continue in, Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians, the fourth chapter, there's another continue. Because I told you, I said I had three admonishments. We just covered one. In Colossians chapter 4, we now consider the next. And it was in Colossians, the fourth chapter, that there's another continue that I would like to say. You know, Elder Frazee made it very, very clear that in the erecting of Wildwood, in the running and maintaining of Wildwood, it was not enough that brethren would study the word of God in great effort, but they saturated their efforts in prayer. They spent a lot of time pleading the throne of God in the most holy place and asking, Lord, what is it that you would have us to do? And here goes the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. And what does the Bible say in Colossians 4 and verse 2? Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you. Continue in prayer. Do not neglect your times for fasting and prayer. Do not neglect times to come together as leaders and pray. Never get so busy that you don't have time to have earnest, heartfelt prayer. Not make-believe prayers. Earnest, heartfelt prayer, one with another. God is not asking you to grunt and growl and make all sorts of noise to get his attention. 
but he wants you to come to him sincerely, earnestly. Like, Lord, I need you right now. We need your help. Present his words back to him. Father, you said according to your word that you would do thus and so. We are asking for you to fulfill that for us as your children at this time. The Bible encourages us, continue not only in the word, but continue in prayer. Never, ever stop praying. Never allow your prayer time to become routine. Don't let it fall into that trap. Sometimes we can just come together in the morning and say, all right, let's pray. And it's almost as if we don't believe a single thing we're even praying about. Never allow prayer to just become the habit or the thing that you do before you go ahead and do the work that you're really going to give your energy to. When you come together for prayer, you understand that the whole throne room of heaven is now available at your calling. And when you come together and fall upon your knees, you pray as if you believe that when you get up, God has answered your prayer. Believe that and accept it be that you're not clear on his will. You see, we can, the Bible is very clear, isn't it? 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, what's the promise? He hears us. And since we know that he hears, not only does he hear us, what did it say next? It says, and if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we guess. Is that what the verse says? It says, we know that we have the petition that we desire of him. So when you know that what you're asking for is the will of God, man, you should go in your prayer sessions with boldness. God, I don't read where the Bible says, come timidly to my throne of grace. I read the opposite in Hebrews 4. It says, come boldly to the throne of grace. How do you come boldly? Not in our own human arrogance. We come boldly because we know, Lord, what I'm asking, I know it's your will. You have revealed it to us. Therefore, we ask. And so we don't just continue in the word, but we also continue in prayer. But there's one last admonishment I want to give you on this point. John 15. It is in John, the 15th chapter, that there's one more continue. And I love this continue. I pray you do as well. It was right there. In John, the 15th chapter, Jesus not only admonishes us, continue in my word. He not only admonishes us, continue in prayer. But in John 15, right there in verse 9, what does the Bible say? It says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. And then what does he say to do? Continue in my love. Guard your heart from allowing the love of Christ to wax cold. Guard your heart. One of the things that we used to train our missionaries at Tekoa Missions when I was there working as a director is I remember we would encourage our missionaries. We said, every day, plead with God, Lord, give me a greater love for souls. Give me a greater love for souls because people can, I used to always say, Christianity, the practice of Christianity is easy. As long as you don't have to deal with people. <laughs> Christianity can become very easy until, oh, I got to deal with people. And it's when we begin to deal with people, irritation, 
agitation, anger, resentment, bitterness, and the rest of these elements. You know, it's funny. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're very good, very good. Uh, well, we, we, I, I would imagine we could always do better, but we're pretty good at, at scrutinizing the soul before they get baptized. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're breaking the Sabbath, we're going to make an appeal that you no longer do that. Start keeping Sabbath. If you are stealing, we're going to make sure you don't steal anymore. If you're committing adultery and living an adulterous life, we make sure you're not committing adultery anymore. We put a check on external sins before we baptize them. But the last I checked, God will not let anyone in his kingdom with unforgiveness still in their heart. God will not let anyone in his kingdom that harbors resentment and bitterness towards their fellow man. And it's amazing how when we do baptismal preparation, we'll go over all the external sins, but we don't address the heart sins. Lord has given us at our church a wonderful privilege. We just baptized one young man a couple of weeks ago. And as I kept preaching and doing all these things, we have more and more people lining up. Now we have up to 12 to 13 people that want to get baptized. And these are not little children that you can easily influence. These are full-grown adults, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And as I'm doing that baptismal uh, preparation class, I'm sitting there with all these people, and I'm saying, listen... We are not going to do it the way that things have often been done. You cannot allow resentment to be in your heart when you're dry and then allow it to be maintained when you come up wet. Before you get baptized, we we must see how we can allow Jesus to uproot that hatred that we have towards others. That bitterness, that unforgiveness. Do you know that that, those sins should be just as well checked as Sabbath breaking before somebody's baptized? I wish somebody would have said that to me. Duane, is there any bitterness in your heart before we baptize you? Duane, is there any unforgiveness towards anybody who has ever offended you? Anybody? I wish somebody. This is one of the reasons why we have such frustration in the church. We focus so much on the external while we neglect those heart sins. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I get it. When we work with each other, we have different ideas, different ideologies, different concepts. We come from different cultures. We have so much difference, and there's beauty in difference. But sometimes we can allow ourselves to get to a place that when we work with others, we're more annoyed than happy to see them. We shake their hands and say, happy Sabbath, when in our minds we're saying, I wish you would go away. Right? You know, one of the things the Pharisees were called was hypocrites. You read that in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. One day I looked up the word hypocrite. I wanted to know what a hypocrite is. And I looked up the word hypocrite in the Greek. You know what I found the word hypocrite means? Actor. It literally means actor. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, a bunch of actors. You act like you got love, but you know you hate me. That's what Jesus was talking about. And that's why he admonishes us in John 15. He says, don't start with my love. He says, continue in my love. 
Let the love of God continue. Let no man, no woman, no agitation, no angry, none of these things. We must plead with God, Lord, help me to never, ever look at people in any other way than a blood-bought soul. Someone that Jesus loves, someone that Jesus died for, and someone that I am to be an instrument in your hands to see how can I do that which would encourage them. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the book, Ministry of Healing, under, uh, you know, the uh, uh, helping the tempted. Favorite, one of my favorite chapters, helping the tempted. Anytime I start getting irritated with people, I go back to helping the tempted. Seriously, it helps, it helps me tremendously. I'm, I encourage you, if you've never read it, go to it. If you're annoyed with people right now, go to helping the tempted. Read it and read it prayerfully. And I remember that I was going on there and it talked about people who need help. And one of the things that is said in the chapter is it says, when you see people in certain situations that need help, we are not to ask, are they worthy? You know why God says we're not to ask, are they worthy? Because we weren't worthy. We were not worthy. Remember, the only people who get justification are the people who recognize that they are ungodly if we really understood our true condition we could say lord you give this grace to me me and if we could really understand that it won't be hard for us to duplicate or replicate that same love towards god when he offers his power to you and i to demonstrate and so it is that god says when we come across those people that need help we are not to ask are they worthy only we are to ask how can i help them Isn't that beautiful? Don't ask, are they worthy? That's a waste of time. Now, family, don't be just a hearer of the word. Dr. Zeno said that earlier today. Be a doer of it. Don't waste your time asking if they're worthy. Because there might be some people even under the sound of my voice that might be offended with somebody else in this room under the sound of my voice. And one of the things that we might be thinking sometimes is, are they worthy? You know, or we've already decided how we're going to act because we've already said, nope, they're unworthy. I'm not doing it. But that's not the answer. The answer is, how can I best help them? Now, I'm going to tell you, sometimes the best way to help somebody is to not do something for them. Did you get, did you get that? You caught that? You got that? There's some people that sometimes the worst thing you could do for them is to help them in the way that they're asking to be helped. And that's why we need to continue in prayer. So God can let us know exactly what to do. The bottom line is, beloved, continue in God's love. Never let God's love go out. Make sure that you look at each other, not just merely as employer and employee, not even so much to look at each other as fellow worker and et cetera, but look at people. You know, the one thing I don't like and I, I, you know, I, I come, coming into Seventh-day Adventist church, everybody called each other brother and sister. That's how I came in. Brother this, brother, I wasn't, I wasn't Dwayne anymore. I was Brother Dwayne or Brother Lemon. And I'm not here necessarily to tell you, if any of you have been calling me Dwayne, don't call me that anymore. Like, only call me brother so-and-so. I'm good on the first name basis, but this is my point. I'll tell you one thing I did like about the brother-sister concept. I needed reminders that you're my family. And I think sometimes you need reminders that I'm your family. 
And if you really see me as family and if I really see you as family, then that means that we're not going to treat each other certain ways that we treat total strangers. Are you following that? And so God wants us to understand that, hey, listen, sometimes there's a blessing in saying, Brother Samuel, it is good to see you, my man. I just want to remind myself that's my brother I'm looking at. And then it reminds me brothers should love one another. You get what I'm saying? God makes it very clear, family, continue in my love. And so these are my three admonishments to each and every one of those who are workers and facilitators here at the beloved Wildwood Institute. I want to encourage you to continue in God's word. I want to encourage you to continue in prayer. I want to encourage you to continue in God's love in the heart that is the chief motivating factor of why you do what you do. That is a beautiful legacy to leave behind for others to take the baton and to continue on. As it pertains to some of the areas where, by the grace of God, we can maybe improve, maybe grow, maybe look at things differently, maybe understand some things better. I want to come back to Revelation 14, 12. You'll remember that it was in Revelation 14, 12 that the Bible said, here is the patience of the, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the, now we saw three experiences in that verse. Patient saints, they keep the commandments of God, and they have the faith of Jesus. But we also saw that there's an order. Which one comes first? Faith of Jesus. Having received justification through the faith of Jesus enables me to actually keep God's commandments. And it is through exercising faith, the faith of Jesus, and keeping God's commandments that it calls me and empowers me and you to become patient, enduring saints. I want to do a quick lesson on faith. Matthew chapter 8. Let's turn there. In Matthew the 8th chapter, the Bible spells it out like this. We're looking at Matthew the 8th chapter, and we're going to consider verses 5 through 10. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10. Quick little biblical lesson on faith. And it's being taught to us by the author of faith. I think the author of faith has a right to tell us what faith is. Do you agree? The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the 8th chapter, we're starting at verse 5. If you're there, say amen. Amen. In verse 5, it says, And when Jesus was uh, entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant... Lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And then verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily, I say unto you, I have not found so what? Great faith. No, not even in Israel. Jesus showed in verse 10 
that there's something that that man did that was not just faith, but it was great faith. And what he did was in verse 8. In verse 8, he made it clear. He demonstrated humility. Lord, I know you want to come to my house. Don't come to my house. Don't even worry about coming to my house. He said, just speak the word only. And my servant, I know, will be healed. So when we think about what is faith, faith is trusting the word of God only. The word of God is going to do everything that it said it's going to do. And we can depend on that. Now, the reason why Jesus marveled so much at seeing this is because he was able to see an aspect of himself. And, you know, it's very interesting because the people often that made Jesus marvel were not Jews. Are you aware of that? The ones that really made him marvel in a good way, you know, sometimes he marveled at the wickedness of man's heart. That he saw amongst the Jews. But it made him marvel when he saw, like, this person really gets it. Now, the reason for that is because Jesus was seeing the very faith he had, he was seeing it being demonstrated in another soul. You see, when we talk about what is the faith of Jesus, think about it. The Bible says in John 5 and verse 30, I can of my own self do how many things? Nothing. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father that has sent me. In John 6, in verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Then Luke 2, verse 49, I must be about my father's business. Then you have John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish the work. Luke 22 and verse 42, not my will, but thine be done. How much of Jesus's will did he exercise on this earth? He absolutely did none. Whose will did he exercise at every phase of his life when he walked on this earth? His father's will. And so when we look look at this, The faith of Jesus is a life of firm trust in God that leads to a lifestyle of complete subordination to the Father's will. That's the faith of Jesus. He's demonstrating it. That's why he marveled when he saw that man. He's looking at this man saying, wait a minute, you're doing exactly what I did. You're not trusting in your feelings. You're not trusting in your impressions. You're not trusting in what other people say. You simply want my word to be the guide of your life, and you're willing to submit to whatever my word says, and you trust it fully. Jesus says, that's my faith. And this is why we hear from the prophet of God, the faith of Jesus. It is talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer? that he might become our sin-pardoning Savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness and faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. If we can make sure that every person that steps foot on these grounds walks away with this understanding. Heaven would look at us and say, 
a job has been well done. If we can make sure that we are intentional. Now, it may be said, we're already doing that. Well, then continue in the word. Well, then continue in prayer and continue in demonstrating that beautiful love of God. But if this is an area that we can look at and say, Lord, you know, I, I have to admit, maybe I have not been as intentional, yea, methodical, in making sure that every precious soul that comes here is given information, given tools, given a word, given something that enables them, enables them to leave here knowing exactly what the faith of Jesus is and knowing how to walk in that light as Christ is in that light. If we can impart that to others, God can say, truly, this is a ministry that is fulfilling the purpose of why I raised it up. And this can become something that we can think about, that we can pray about, and that we can deeply contemplate. It might mean that some things have to be rewritten or redone. It might mean that there might be a change to the flow of how, uh, you know, health guests and so on are addressed. But brothers and sisters, so be it. If it can help others to come to a greater understanding and a greater saving knowledge of Christ, their righteousness, understanding what's going on in our world and what is about to get worse before it gets better, I believe, brothers and sisters, that we can put a smile on Jesus' face. You know, everything that we do should be for one reason with God, that we may please him. Everything that we do, it should be for that primary motive. Lord, I do this that I may please you. You know that helped me in marriage? That helped me a lot in marriage. I said, Lord, I, you know, I'm naturally selfish like any other man. It's like I want to make sure when I do things for my wife, I don't want to do it because I'm trying to get something from her or, 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 or anything selfish. And I asked God, Lord, teach me how to do this. You see, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, turn there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is how the apostle Paul puts it. And he talks about this in the context of soldiers, of which you and I are. And he says in 2 Timothy, we're looking at chapter 2. And we're going to consider verse 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, the Bible says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? He says, That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Do you see how even avoiding being entangled with the things of this life, not letting the things of this world entangle and engross our minds, the Bible says the motive of why we do that is that we may please the one who has called me to be a soldier. You know, you can please God too much. Did you know that? And you know what can happen to you if you please God too much. You ever study that? You ever study what the Bible shows what can happen if you please God too much? Looks like you never studied it. Okay, go to Hebrews 11. If you go to Hebrews 11, I'll show you what happened. Family, I'm just warning you. If you please God too much, I'm just going to let you know what can happen. Hebrews 11. Hebrews, the 11th chapter. I'll show you right from the Bible. This is what can happen if you please God too much. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, we're looking at chapter 11. Consider verse 5. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, by faith. Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he did what? I told you, if you please God too much, 
you might get translated. You just might get translated. I don't know how you feel about that, but I know how I feel about that. I love it. (laughs) And I want to please him, brothers and sisters. We need to ask God, Lord, help me help this to be my motive of why I do the things that I do for you. Not that I'm trying to earn any favor. There's no favor I can earn. But, Lord, I want to do this because just to know that this pleases you. Father, that is what gives my heart joy, and I'm so happy to know it gives your heart joy. You will find that as we continue to articulate the third angel's message, including the warning, amen, Amen. but emphasizing even the more the experience, you will find that many of those who come here will be thoroughly blessed, and the best news in the world is they'll leave here thoroughly blessed. But there's another thing that we can consider. Now, this has been a burden of mine for a very long time. Quick background, because I'm watching the clock. (laughs) I stand before you as a very uneducated man pertaining to the world of academia. I don't have the privilege of having college degrees under my name. But nevertheless, I've taught in universities. When I was taught this message 30 years ago, I remember I came to my elder and I told him, I said, Elder, uh, his name is Elder Morgan. I said, Elder Morgan, how do you do that? He was like a walking library. I mean, he had all sorts of stuff in in his mind. He just had this whole, it's like he had the whole Bible in his mind. You know, and I was like, how do you do that? I mean, it was thoroughly impressive to me, I have to admit. And I used to ask him, like, how do you memorize where all this stuff is? And he would say, those who spend time in God, those who love God spend time in his word. I was like, all right. And then I remember asking Elder Morgan, I said, Elder Morgan, can I, can I learn how to do these things? Can I learn how to do what you're doing? And he said, Dwayne, you can learn anything. And I was like, well, you don't understand. I said, I don't even have a high school diploma. I don't have this. I don't have that. I've eaten anything that could move. I've smoked at times. I've drunk this. I've drunk that. You know, I'm trying to let him know, like, you know, I've treated myself pretty bad. And he would just simply say, Dwayne, there is no mind too dull that God cannot make brilliant. Man, I held on to that. I was like, can God teach me? Now, I dare not stand before you to say, I have a brilliant mind. I'm not here to say that. What I am here to say is there is no, there is absolutely no connection between my mind 30 years ago and the mind that I have right now. There's absolutely no connection. And so I look back and I see that God, I began to walk from the bus stop to my house repeating Bible verse. I, I wanted to experiment this thing. I wanted to see, let's see what this thing in my head called a brain. Let's see what it can know. And so I'd walk from the bus stop to my house, and I'd say, okay, the 490-year prophecy. When did it begin? 457 B.C. How do you know? Because in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 25, it made it clear at the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, when was Jerusalem restored or rebuilt? Well, you have to go to the book of Ezra. Which one? Chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6, because there's three chapters that all deal with rebuilding. One was by Cyrus, another one was by Darius, and the other one was by Artaxerxes. So which one is it? Well, it couldn't be Cyrus and Darius because their restoration was partial. It was only under Artaxerxes that they were finally given full autonomy. It's like I would literally be saying this as I'm walking from the bus stop to my house with no Bluetooth headset. (laughs) So people knew knew this brother's on fire for something because he's talking to himself. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They knew. They said, something got this brother on fire. 
And here it is that I'm just walking around like, man, this is deep. And so I was amazed. God enabled my mind. I can remember some things. A guy came to me one time as I'm advancing in the church. And he said, hey, brother, did you know the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon? I said, what? I'm new in the faith. He said, the Seventh-day Adventist church is Babylon. I said, are you serious? He said, yep. I said, how do you know? He said, right here. And he gave me a quote, some quotes from Ellen White. And when I read the quotes, I was like, oh, it's true. So I go to my elders. That's the thing. Whatever I believe, I teach. So I went to my elders. I said, elders, I got to talk to you guys. I went to Elder Morgan, Elder James, Elder Montoot. I said, got to talk to you guys. They were like, what's up? I said, bad news. (laughs) Literally, bad news. Bad news. I said, the church is Babylon. And they looked at me very calm. They said, really? And I said, yep, church is Babylon. I said, we have to warn the people. We got to get out. <laughs> now, I'm serious because I, I honestly was like, it's true. It's got to be true because Ellen White said so. Now, here's where my lack of education kicks in. Elder James says, so what evidence do you have? I said, right here. And I gave him the quotes. He said, Dwayne, um, what does the dot, 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 dot reference after the quote? True story. I was like, it means that she means what she says, period, 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 period. (laughs) True story. Can't make this stuff up. Education is very important. Very important. Just because you believe present truth does not mean you should not have thorough education. He said, no, Dwayne, that doesn't mean that. He said, that is showing that there's a continuation to the quote. Why don't we pull up each of the references? And he pulled up each of the references, and that's when he showed me how every single assertion that was made from that document was completely erroneous. This was the first time I realized, oh, I have to guard my mind. So I'm really learning. So as I began to study the Bible more and eventually started to teach the Bible more, I started to develop this passion that I said, Lord, if Ellen White's writings are not an addition or a subtraction to the Bible, then that means that whatever she says comes from the Bible. So what I would like to do, and I developed this habit over the past 20 plus years now, is I said, I want to see whatever she says, where is it in the Bible? And it launched me on a journey. I have to admit, one of the agitations that I have today, a lot of the medical missionaries that I have come in contact with, which is a lot, in the thousands, they do not know their Bibles very well. You see, And I'm just being honest with you. Just reading the Bible, not understanding what it says, and then going to your computer and typing in the reference and pulling up an Ellen White quote that explains the scripture, that is not study. That's not study. That's laziness. If Ellen White were alive, she would rebuke us. 
That's not study. Even Ellen White, when she received a vision, she did not just, you know, oh, I don't understand what the Bible says. (gasps) Glory. And then go into vision. It didn't happen like that. She and the pioneers would come together and they would study, 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 and they would go verse by verse and going back and forth. It would sometimes be days of going over the verses. And then after they have reached the extremity of their effort, then God would touch her precious mind that she would be inspired with a vision or understanding from the Lord of what a verse was talking about. And then even afterwards, there were times she and the pioneers would go further and deeper in their studies to verify the things that were seen in vision. Ellen White was a deep Bible student. If there's one thing that I would like to recommend, and I recommend this quite honestly to all the institutes, I would like to recommend address present issues while teaching present truth. I would like to recommend teach the Bible to your students. Teach the Bible to your staff. Teach the individuals how to talk Bible and speak Bible and present Bible when going before the masses because our work is not just a work to edify those within. Our work is a work to edify those without. And you have to know how to do that and use scripture. We can't use the writing of the prophet yet because they don't believe the prophet yet. And so I'm going to kind of kill two birds with one stone in this last phase of our presentation here. And that is dealing with, number one, when we address present truth, we must also address present issues. Two, in presenting present truth on present issues, learn how to do it largely from the Bible. It is not to negate the writings of Ellen White. Brothers and sisters, I study Ellen White's books every single day. So this is not an issue. It's not an issue of how I feel about the prophet of God. She's the prophet of God. That's a hands down. I believe her words are absolutely authoritative and they are inspired. And what God is simply saying is to better equip you. I want you to know where it came from because for she even said, had the people of God been studying their Bibles as they should, there would not have been a need for the testimonies, but now it's too late. Don't try to give the gift back. Seriously, because it's amazing how people take her words and go to extremes. Well, Ellen White said that, it, so I'm not going to read her writings. That is not what the servant of the Lord said. Too late. We need the gift now. But God wants us to understand that, listen, if we can learn this, quick, quick, quick story. Baptist Church calls me in to come speak to their people. When they called me in to come speak to their people about health reform and the Bible, I remember that as we did the meeting, we decided that we were going to share Steps to Christ and we were going to share Ministry of Healing. It was part of the registration. Everybody had to get it. And it was hundreds and hundreds of members there. And so it is that when we started this training, everybody was getting Ministry of Healing, Steps to Christ. We're two weeks into the meeting. You know what the pastor did? He calls me up. He says, Dwayne, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, "Uh, it's the books that we're using. I said, what's wrong with the books? He said, nothing. That's the problem. Nothing. That's the problem. Ellen White is so on target with everything she's saying in these books. My elders have pulled me aside and threatened me 
that I better stop you or they will fire me. I need to know, can you please stop using those books to do the rest of our sessions? I said, Pastor, Ellen White's writings are like a magnifying glass. A magnifying glass does not put something there that wasn't there, nor does it take away something that was there. It only makes clear what's already there. That's all Ellen White's writings was doing. But I said, but we don't want to disrupt what's happening over here because you agree this is a good thing happening. He's like, oh, it's a great thing. I said, all right, so then don't worry. I'll teach everything that I was going to teach through those books. I'll teach it straight from the Bible. He said, you do that? I said, absolutely. We finished the last several weeks teaching all the same principles straight from the Bible. But thank God that I studied those books and looked at those principles in times past to prepare for that moment. Do you know that when we finished working with him, we gave him a hardcover copy of the whole Conflict of the Ages series, which he took with gladness. Then he recommended it to the rest of his saints. Then he recommended us over to Bishop Lee, which was a 15,000 member Baptist church. And he did a video, I endorse these ministries. Never forget it. And I thought to myself, I said, Lord, what if I would have been an arrogant SDA? Oh, you don't like the prophet of God? Well, forget you. No, that's it. We're leaving. I would have lost a whole witness opportunity. But what happened? I had to learn what she says in those books. Where is it in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? Are you following that? And so what I'm saying to you, family, is that you will be amazed at your witnessing opportunities, your ministry opportunities. The more that you can learn how to talk dual language. I can talk straight Bible. And I can talk the wonderful writings of the servant of the Lord. I can talk both languages. You'll reach more people. So when I get around the hardcore, diehard, present truth Adventists, and they want to go ahead and quote all those Ellen White quotes, I'm like, all right, let's talk. Let's, let's go through the quotes. I can talk their language because their souls to be one too. But when I'm around everybody else, I can go ahead and say, all right, yeah, let's take a look at the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. And so God enables us to win the more. I become all things to all people, that I may win them. Are you following that? Now, when we're talking about present truth and present issues, you know, you remember Luke 4 and verse 18, Jesus made it very clear. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and uh, to set at liberty them that are bruised, etc. Now, when Jesus did that, The next thing that we see is he starts launching into his ministry. When we study Jesus and we look at his ministry, just looking at healing of the blind and all these things, there was always like this dual application. So I put the verses up there, but because of time's sake, I won't turn to it. You can take pictures. You can write it down. But when you look at blindness as an example, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he would address literal blindness But then he would also address spiritual blindness. So he came to heal the people from both. Are you following that? Then same thing, feeding the hungry. He would literally feed the hungry. But then he would also provide for those who were spiritually hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In other words, Jesus was like, look. Present truth always addresses present issues. If people are naked, they need to be clothed. If people are hungry, they need to be fed. 
The same way that people, if they're spiritually hungry, they need to be fed. If people are spiritually naked, they need to be clothed with his robe of righteousness. The key is, is that whenever there's an actual present issue, present need, Jesus did not overlook it. When he knew it was shaking society, watch this, from receiving him. And so present truth always addresses present issues. Another example, go to Matthew 15. Let's turn there. In Matthew 15, this one we'll turn to. We'll see a little bit more. Matthew 15. And now we're going to consider verses 21 to 28. Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Here's what the Bible says. In Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, I thought that this was interesting. Jesus dealt with the issues of his day. People were hungry. They needed to be fed. People were thirsty. They needed drink. People were naked. They needed to be clothed. And he would provide the literal means, but he would also provide the spiritual means. Now look at Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, verse 21, the Bible says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan. Is that a Gentile or a Jew? Very good. It says, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But now look at injury number one, verse 23. But he answered her not a word. Can, can you imagine you are coming to Jesus? Like, please, please, my daughter. And you're crying. Please help my daughter. And Jesus is looking at you. And then after you say, please, will you help my daughter? And, he, and, and she's looking him in the eyes. And then he looks at her. And he doesn't say anything. He answers her not a word. That's wound number one. But then wound number two comes up. What, is that? what else does it say in verse 23? It says, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. Wound number one, Lord, please help me. And he gives off an appearance of indifference. And he doesn't even answer her. Wound number two, the disciples come along boldly. Lord, make her go away. She's annoying. Make her go away. She keeps annoying us with all this crying. Verse 24. But he answered and said, wound number three, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's wound number three. I didn't come for your people. I came for my people. Then, verse 25. How did she respond? Then came she, and what did she do? And worshipped him, and saying, Lord, help me. Wound number four, verse 26. But he answered and said, it is not appropriate to take the children's bread and to give it to dogs. That's wound number four. He likened her to a dog. The disciples are sitting back and they are like, this is classic. <laughs> the disciples are like, give that nasty Gentile exactly what she deserves but oh how Jesus in his heart 
Jesus knew what he was doing. He's, he, he, he's trying to get something for his disciples to understand. But then it says in verse 27, and she said, truth, Lord, this woman was humble. You just called me a dog. I mean, certain people would have been like, Lord, help. What'd you just call me? What you, did you just call me a dog? But look, look at how much the spirit of God had complete possession of this woman's mind. She says, truth, Lord. True, true, you're right. She said, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. It was as it were that Jesus says, I can't hold it back anymore. She has passed the test. And Jesus says to her in verse 28, then Jesus answered and said unto her, oh, woman. Now, remember, in the east, to be called a woman was one of the highest respectful terms that could be given to a female. That's why you remember when Jesus said to his mother, woman, it is not my time yet, etc. Now he's calling her that. The same person that it, it was, as it were, disrespected purely because she was of another race, another culture, another background different from the Jews. Now Jesus is speaking to her as she deserves to be spoken to, woman. He says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You know what else existed in the days of Jesus? Racism. And as we saw in the ministry of Christ, all of his demonstrations of present truth were designed to address present issues. Is racism a present issue? What are we teaching and what are we doing and what are we demonstrating and empowering and equipping all of those who come here that they may know how to deal with the horrible agitations of difficult race relations that are happening in our world? You see, turning a blind eye is not the answer. Ignoring as if the problem is not there is not the answer. What if we could have something here at Wildwood? And again, if it's already happening, then praise the Lord. But what if we could have something here that teaches people this is how we address the issues of race relations and how we can be an instrument in God's hands to help solve this very present issue. Present truth training should address these present issues because it was important enough for Jesus to do it in his day. Why is it now all of a sudden so unimportant for us to do it in our day? Let the church say amen. God wants us to understand that this is a very serious thing. You see, in Genesis 41, 37 to 44, thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy words shall my people be ruled. I have set thee over all the land of Egypt, and he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried before him, bow the knee, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is obviously talking about our dear brother Joseph. 
Daniel, same thing. When you look at Daniel, then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. You know, these, these guys were slaves, but God gave them favor. And as God gave them favor, they had no problem ruling over the nation. But they were the children of God. But they took advantage of their position to see what can we do to help the people that desperately need help in many of the civil issues that were taking place in their day. What if we could encourage young people who come here? You know, sometimes at Tekoa, we used to ask young people, what, what has God laid out for you for your future? What's your life work? One thing that's tragic is for a student to come to a mission school, stay for several months just to leave having no idea what their life work is. That's, that, that, that ought not be. We should be intentional as leaders that nobody leaves this school. Nobody comes here and stays with us for six months, one year, or whatever the time period. Nobody leaves here without knowing what their life work is. Or without us putting forth the greatest effort to help them to know what their life work is. And do you know that some, some of the young people's life work here, some of them might be lawyers. Somebody said, oh, brother, let me, we, we're trying to finish the work. A lawyer, that means they got to go to college. True education is not there. That's what we say, right? And that's why I, I specifically chose this quote just for those who think like this. Since, since they like the spirit of prophecy so much, I said, well, let me quote, quote Ellen White. Here we go. Well, dear youth. Listen carefully to this. This is not the opinion of a little old lady from the 1800s with a third grade education. This is the testimony of Jesus. It says, dear youth, what is the aim and purpose of your life? Are you ambitious for education that you may have a name and position in the world? Have you thoughts that you dare not express that you may one day stand upon the summit of intellectual greatness? That you may sit in deliberative and what else? Legislative councils and help to do what? And act laws for the nation. Do you know that were it not written in the spirit of prophecy, some people would say, brother, you, you are teaching anti-present truth. Some people would say that. But the question is, She's saying, is it wrong to be ambitious? Is it wrong to want to do all these things? I wonder what the answer is. Let's take a look. There is nothing wrong in these aspirations. You may, every one of you, make your mark. You should be content with no mean attainments. Aim high and spare no pains to reach the standard. Can you imagine that? That the spirit of prophecy. And I, I know how people, some people say, well, we got to read that in context. I, I, I hope you do. Because I dare not present anything before you that I did not read up and down first. And the next paragraph after this might shock you. Because it actually encourages going to schools. You see, God never had a problem for his children to go to place, go to other schools that are not blueprint schools. 
as long as they are three things, she says, rooted, grounded, and settled in the truth. That was the criterion. But do you see how many of us have wholesale taken people? We wholesale removed people from the schools in the name of true education. We wholesale remove people from the schools. And what do we have today? We have a whole bunch of young people coming to get trained in our schools and basically have one of two fates. Either they come to the schools and get trained, have nowhere to go, so they end up staying on the grounds of the school for years and 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 years. Or they leave the schools having no clue how to sustain and support themselves as true education teachers. And then one day we're walking up in KFC and there they are. How can I help you? Would you like some vegan chicken nuggets? And after a while they forgot all their training. I'm not speaking theory. I wish I was. And I'm especially talking about North America. Especially talking about North America. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very serious problem. And so, beloved, what I'm simply saying is another thing that we can consider is how can we be an instrument in God's hands in helping our young people to know and understand what their life work is and then see how God can use us to help direct and guide them that they may be successful in whatever path God has said, whether it be in common vocation or if it be in full-time self-supporting gospel ministry. That's something we can think about. That's something we can say, wow, Lord, how can you use me that I could do that? That sounds like a blessing. Lastly, wrap it up. Here we're going to go past. This, this is good stuff right here. This was good. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> in time, in time. Show Ellen White's writings from the Bible. I just want to give you a few examples of this. So, you know, like I told you, where, where are her statements from the Bible? So let me give you an example. We know this story very well, don't we? All right, head of gold, Babylon, arms and breasts of silver, Medo-Persia, belly and thigh of brass, Greece, legs of iron, Rome. Feet of iron and clay, what do we say? Exactly. So, when we get to the feet of iron and clay, it always seems to be the confusing point, doesn't it? Why it is, I don't know. It's just as clear as everything else. But what does the feet and iron and clay have represent? It represents the combining of church and state. That is the best way to articulate the feet of iron and clay. I would not say the, the ten divided nations of Western Europe because after the feet of iron and clay, what comes next? The stone that is cut out without hands and sets up the kingdom. So that means that the feet of iron and clay are going to exist until the end of time. The ten divided nations of Western Europe does not exist until the end of time because we were already told by Daniel at least three got uprooted. Are you following? I mean, that's, 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 that's prophecy 101. That's ABC 123. Now, watch this. So what does the feet of iron and clay represent? Let's zoom in on the feet, right? If you zoom in on the feet of iron and clay, the iron is obviously a continuum of the legs. So if the legs already represented Rome, then you better believe that the iron also represents Rome, which was a civil power. However... The clay is a brand new element, isn't it? 
What does a clay represent? You can write down the references. We don't have time to turn to it. But as you can see in Jeremiah 18, 4 through 6, Isaiah 64 and verse 8, clay represents the people of God. Clay represents the people of God. You can go ahead and reference the verses. So what's going to happen, Daniel is prophesying, is that there's going to be a mixture of Rome and the people of God. Paul calls that, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, and 4, Paul calls that apostasy. Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul is showing very clearly there's going to be an apostasy that's going to happen. That's what falling away means, a defection from the truth. They were once holding on to it, fell from the truth, linked up with the iron, and produced something that today we call the papacy. The Roman Catholic Church. So Daniel saw that this was going to come. Now watch Revelation 13. Turn there. I'll give you these last few points. Revelation 13. Take a look. 7 and 8. You'll remember that in the prophetic vision that, Paul, that uh, John the Revelator gave, that he showed very clearly that the dragon gave the beast power. That's in verse 2 of Revelation 13. The dragon, Satan, gave the beast, Rome, power. Now watch this. Where exactly was that power exercised? Verses 7 and 8. The Bible says in verse 7, Revelation 13, verse 7, it says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. When you have power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations, people in the land, what kind of power is that called? Civil power. You have power over all the civilians. Civil power. Verse 8. When you look at verse 8, it doesn't stop there. It says, and how many? All that dwell upon the earth shall do something else. What else are they going to do? Worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What kind of power is that called when you compel people on the point of worship? Religious power. And so the Bible shows that there is going to be a union of civil and religious power that's going to come together that is going to result in persecuting and prosecuting the people of God. Straight Bible. But then you go here. Manuscript release, book 15, page 39, paragraph 2. The mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? It says this union is weakening all the power of the churches. This investing the church with the power of the state will bring evil results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. They have invested their strength in politics and have united with the papacy. But the time will come when God will punish those who have made void his law and their evil work will recoil upon themselves. Do you see how we're reading it here? 
But did we not establish this point straight from the Bible? Are you following that? This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be able to read that quote. You read that, 15 MR 39, you're like, hmm, Lord, where's that in the Bible? How can I see that in the Bible? And then God leads us right back. And we just more carefully go through Daniel 2. We go carefully through Daniel 7. We compare it carefully with Revelation 13. And we say, voila, there it is. It was right there in the Bible all along. This is how Ellen White's writings work. Now, that's one thing. How about this? Fish, beast, fowl. What did God say about this? Right? God said this. In the book of Hosea 3, 5 and Hosea 4, 1 to 3, here's what God prophesied. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days, last days. The first application of this prophecy is dealing with the Assyrian kingdom. The second application is dealing with God's people in the last moments of earth's history. So watch what it says next. Now, talking about the latter days, watch chapter 4, verse 1. It says, hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no what? Truth nor, nor knowledge of God in the land. Does that fit our day today? Is there a lack of truth? Is there a lack of mercy? Is there a lack of the knowledge of God in the land? I wonder what's the result of this. Verse 2. It says in verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. It seems like blood is everywhere. Do we not see these things happening today? Absolutely. Watch the first word in verse 3. The first word in verse 3 says, therefore. What does the word therefore mean? As a result of this. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. The word languish means to become enfeebled and diseased. What did God prophesy was going to become enfeebled and diseased in the last days? With the beasts of the field, with the fowls of the heaven, and with the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. So the Bible prophesied in the last days that animal flesh and animal products are going to become enfeebled and diseased. And watch this. Why did the animal products become enfeebled and diseased? Because of the increase of wickedness in our world. Is that not what we saw in the verses? See, so it's not a problem to read this quote. Tell them that the time will soon come when there will be no safety in using eggs, milk, cream, or butter. Because disease in animals is increasing in proportion to the increase of wickedness among men. The time is near when because of the iniquity of the fallen race, the whole animal creation will groan under the diseases that curse our earth. Do you not see it, family? Yes. Ellen White said that, but where'd she get it from? She got it straight from the Bible. It's just that God's people couldn't see it, so God gave some bifocals. He just gave us another lens to show us what the Bible was already saying. Are you following that? I thank God there's a prophet in Israel. I'm not going to be ashamed of the prophet of God. I just simply want to teach her words intelligently. That's all. Finally, 
You'll remember Lot. We're told an inspiration, something very powerful. It says, if Lot himself had manifested no hesitancy to obey the angel's warning, but had earnestly fled toward the mountains without one word of pleading or remonstrance, his wife also would have made her escape. The influence of his example would have saved her from the sin that sealed her doom. But his hesitancy and delay caused her to lightly regard the divine warning. I read that and I thought to myself, I said, where, where's that? And it's funny because I've read the story a lot so many times. And I always thought his wife just died because she was greedy. I thought, oh, she died because she's just this worldly woman that just wanted to hold on to her furniture and all this other stuff. And though that's partially true, partially true, but the chief reason why his wife turned into a pillar of salt was because of his example. So I go to the Bible. When I go to the Bible, here's what I found. And while he lingered. Why is it that that word did not stick out to me before? It says, and while, now look what happens. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. But how do you know it impacted his wife? Because of the next point. And upon the hand of his wife. And upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and sent him without the city. I believe if we can imagine, imagine having a crop of students. And you can walk them through point by point. And we just show them, well, look at all these teachings from the, the writings of God's prophet, Ellen White. And they would say, all right, now what we want you to do is we want to break you up into groups. We're going to give you 30 minutes, and I want you to start using the tools of how to study the Bible. And I want you to go ahead and find those points right from the scripture. You can use concordance. You can use your Bible. You can use dictionary. You're not allowed to use any books filled with facts that are amazing. <laughs> Can't use any of that can't use Ellen White's writings. You got to figure it out by taxing your mind, which is what the prophet of God told us to do. My brothers and sisters, I simply close with this. God is doing a mighty work. God is doing a wonderful work. The Lord has accomplished many great things here at Wildwood. But I firmly believe that, as I said to you earlier, as Moses really started to dive into the, full, the fullness of his ministry at 80 years old. I'm hoping that this institute is like a modern-day Moses. Amen. That at 80 years, the leaders come together with prayer, study of the word, love one for another, most importantly, love for Jesus. Amen. And they begin to look at everything, curriculums, everything, and say, Lord, how can you use us? that we can make sure we leave a most excellent legacy for all of those who will come after us to follow, ultimately, to usher in our Savior and to finish his work and be prepared for the final crisis. And my question is, how many of us in this room are willing to support, whether it be with our effort, whether it be with our finances, whether it be with the contribution of our gifts, whatever way it may be, how many of us under this room are willing to say, Lord, However, you can use me to help this institute as well as all of your institutes, for there's no favoritism with God, on how we can leave a most excellent legacy for thy name's honor and glory. If you're willing to do that, 
then I want to invite you to stand to your feet with me. And I'm very serious, family. Whether it be with your money, whether it be with your effort, whether it be with the imparting of your gifts, whatever it may be, your talents, your abilities, that we will help Wildwood as well as God's other institutes to leave a more excellent legacy than that which is already done. I believe God's going to do it. And he's going to work through humble hands and hearts just like you and me. Family, please, for Christ's sake, be faithful. Be faithful. Soon and very soon, we're going to see our king. Everything is wrapping up. The world is showing it. The condition of the church shows it. But God wants to awaken our hearts and arouse us. And I believe that through the power of his love, through the excellency of his spirit, and through a faithful continuing of his word, prayer, and love, we can and will become everything that God has called us to be. Let's pray to that end. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for all things that have transpired in our study today. We thank you, Lord, for all of the wonderful things that your spirit has taught us. We thank you for the encouragement and the admonishment. We thank you for the convictions, Lord, and even possibly corrections. We pray that in the name of Jesus that we will be found faithful at last. Bless Wildwood. Bless all of the leadership here. A bunch of imperfect men and women, yet they are willing. Lord, I pray that you will anoint them with your spirit and use them in mighty ways to be an example to all of the other younger institutes. And Lord, I pray that a legacy truly will be left to be handed down that will please you. Is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.